Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who gives us great comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. So wait, you mean like zombies? Is the response I get from the school children almost every time I speak of the return of Christ and the resurrection of dead on the last day. To which my response is always, no, uh, no. But it just goes to show how inculcated the children are in a culture that does not understand the last things and the return of Christ. As I talk about Christ coming again to raise the dead and bring all the faithful to him in his eternal kingdom, they immediately go to zombies. And so, always, every time I teach this with the children, I have to stop, I have to have them open their Bibles, and we have a mini Bible study on the return of Christ. And it's always a humbling exercise because I'm reminded how much the children need to be taught that Christ will return someday, and that this return is our ultimate and final hope. It's not some end-time vision of apocalypse where everybody is out walking through a wasteland trying to fight their way to better resources or try to rebuild a fallen society. It is a beautiful and glorious image of the return of Jesus. And they need to be taught that this is their ultimate hope, that they should be looking forward to each and every day. And they need to be taught that they should live lives of watchfulness, lives of faith, lives of repentance, so that when that day comes, they do not find themselves outside of the kingdom of Christ. We do not know the day or the hour. We only know that Christ is coming and coming soon. And naturally, when we hear those words, our flesh doesn't care. Our old Adam does not want to consider the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, dead as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. The old Adam in us would rather that we live in blissful ignorance of Christ and his return. But God's word, God's word does not permit us to live in ignorance. Because we are given the plain and simple truth that Christ will return. We do not know the day nor the hour, but we do know that he is coming. And as Jesus ascends into heaven, angels tell his apostles, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who's taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another in these words. Jesus says that he will return to gather us to dwell in his Father's house, as he says in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And we're given the beautiful image of that gathering and that house in the book of Revelation as a new and glorified city, a new Jerusalem, 
where Christ will dwell eternally with his Christians, and he follows that with the promise, Behold, I am coming soon. And that means that we have to and must be ready. We must have ourselves and our lives and conduct our lives and selves in such a way that we are ready for his coming. And the only thing that makes you ready for his coming is the forgiveness of sins that is brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this must be received by faith in his work on the cross. Jesus would have us ready for that day. And that is why he gives us today the parable of the ten virgins, as we have these ten maidens waiting for the arrival of a bridegroom who will lead the procession into a great wedding feast. And among them are five wise young women and five foolish young women. They know the bridegroom is coming. They know his arrival is imminent, but they do not know the exact hour They do not know if it will be day or night. They simply have to be ready. And so they wait. And in their long hours of waiting, they all fall asleep. And in the middle of the dark hours of the night, they are awoken by the announcement that the bridegroom has finally arrived. Yet some of these young women find themselves unprepared. We have the five wise virgins... And as they wait for the bridegroom, they have their lamps with plenty of oil to light the way in the darkness, to follow the procession into the wedding feast. They are ready. And then we have the five foolish virgins. They have their lamps. They believe that they are ready. But when the hour comes, they have no oil. This is like grabbing a flashlight, thinking you're prepared, but not grabbing batteries. And so the five foolish virgins had to rush at the last minute to go and buy some oil from the dealers. They stumble in the darkness, try to find somebody open in the middle of the night to buy their lamp oil. And by the time they have oil and their lamps are lit, it's too late. The bridegroom has come and gone, and the doors to the banquet are shut. The word that Jesus uses to describe these five foolish virgins is mori. It's the word that gives us the modern term, moron. They're not smart. To Jesus, they did the most counterproductive and foolish thing you can imagine. And it's not that they accidentally forgot the oil for their lamps. That's a, that's a very human thing to do, isn't it? Right? I've never been on a camping trip with my family where I have not forgotten something. Something integral and important to the camping trip that we had to figure out how to deal with while we were on the spot. But no, their sin is not that they fail to remember something important. Their sin runs much deeper than this. Their foolish actions are informed by their foolish beliefs. Because here we see that their neglect of the lamp oil shows that they actually didn't think that the bridegroom was coming. They brought the lamp... They went out and waited, but really it was all just a show, a practice. It was not a fixed reality in their heart and their mind, so it did not inform actually how they prepared and behaved. Their lack of oil was the same thing as having Christianity without all the faith and repentance stuff. It is to have a church without the means of grace. See, Jesus uses the means of his word 
and his sacraments to create and sustain faith in us. These are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to bring us to Christ. Faith is created and kept alive when God's word is preached and taught, when pastors absolve sinners, when people are baptized, when the body and blood of Jesus is received. This is what makes us members of Christ. This is how God works to forgive sinners. And so it's impossible to know Christ Jesus without having these gifts. Without the word of God, you can't know Jesus. It is not something that happens. A person cannot say they are a Christian and then reject these things because in rejecting them, they're rejecting Christ who is in them. It is the very definition of being faithless. And faithlessness is reflected in how people actually live their lives. If you actually believe that Jesus is Lord, that he has died to redeem and forgive sinners, and that he is returning soon to judge the living and the dead, this belief will inform how you live and you think about your life. It will inform what sort of career you will pursue. It will inform who you decide to marry, how you raise your children, how you spend your free time, what you watch, what you read, how you view and understand money, how you view and understand politics, and what attitudes you have when dealing with the world around you. And so I'm not going to pursue a career that forces me to cheat my neighbor. Or I'm not going to choose a... Or I'm going to specifically focus on choosing a Christian spouse and remain faithful to that spouse and how I live. I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that my children are taught the Christian faith. I'm going to make sure that attendance in the divine service every Sunday is the first and greatest priority of my week. Worshiping God will trump team sports or entertainment or work or vacations. And why? Because I actually believe that Jesus is coming back someday. And so rather than disconnect from the word, world every evening by staring at my phone or binge-watching something on the internet, I'm going to talk to my family. I'm going to read Bible stories to my children. I'm going to talk to my wife about her day. And my family is going to sing hymns and recite the catechism. I'm going to seek to build a harmonious home life that is centered around the word of God and the grace of Christ Jesus. Not because I want to have a stress-free and simple life, because these things aren't stress-free and they require a good deal of work. Because, but because I know that Christ is coming back. And I want the members of my household to know Jesus. I want my wife and my kids to have oil in their lamps so that when the dark hours come, they are not left out of the feast. This should be obvious, but we're often blinded by the devil, the world, and our own flesh so that we cannot see these things as important. But we can only prioritize what the world calls normal. And when we think about the normal that the world cherishes, it's not home devotions, it's not families gathered around a dinner table singing hymns, it's not husbands and wives having long conversations with each other. What is normal is often the pursuit of vanity and distraction. What is normal is coming home and each person checking out from life. 
As one person sits in the room staring at a tablet, while the other sits in another opposite room on the other end of the house watching TV, while the rest are rushing from one place to the next, one to softball practice, the other to the soccer field, as our lives and days are filled often with so much emptiness that we try to fill it with everything but the Word of God in Christ. We live like we have an unlimited amount of time in the world. But time is coming to an end. Time will run out. If we actually lived as if time were coming to an end, we would fill our days with what is important. And we would waste so much less of it. So many of us will say, I'm a devout Christian. But that only means that maybe I show up for church a few times a year, or I say prayers at family gatherings, or I listen to the Christian radio stations. But the rest of our time and the rest of our lives are indistinguishable from the rest of the world around us. And our true religion is often that of maybe cable news or professional sports or Disney movies or something else kind of silly. As we make sure to have the compartment in our lives that we put all the Christianity stuff, but it's really separated from the rest of reality. I come to church, and that's kind of a fun thing to do, and I really believe in it, and I really like it, but then I go out into the real world, and I do the real stuff. So we separate everything. The foolish virgins think that they are all set to enter the feast. They're waiting with the wise, they're the ones who all claim to be Christians. They're the ones who have their names written, maybe in the rolls or roster of a congregation. They, they show up to get their photo taken for the church directory. They were confirmed when they were children. They own plots in the church cemetery. Yet as St. Paul puts it, not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of the people who claim to be part of the church are actually the church. And this is a sobering reality. As many have all the tangible and worldly benefits of church membership, yet find themselves despising the things in church that truly matter. They may be members of a congregation, but they may call themselves Christian, yet the focus and center of the faith they lack. They are the foolish virgins who did not bring oil for their lamps. They are part of the crowd waiting for Jesus. They're enjoying the company they're looking forward to the banquet, yet they despise Jesus. They despise his preaching. They reject his washing. They don't believe in his holy meal. They want to get into the party, but they hate the bridegroom. They are foolish to think that they can get in without him. The word that the Bible uses for the foolish virgins, once again, is morai. It's the word where we get our word moron, and a person has to be a moron to think that they'll participate in the eternal church in heaven, the banquet of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, while rejecting Christ on earth. And so Jesus is giving a stark warning as he's saying, don't be a fool. The Christian faith must be exercised in the continued life of repentance. The fools heard all of the stuff. They may even have believed at first, but their faith had burnt out, and not a smolder of it remained. Their wicks were dry. 
As the gospel was no longer valuable to them, yes, they claimed to be Christians, they claimed to be part of it, they would make the obligatory church trips on Christmas and Easter, but it wasn't valuable to them. There were other more important things that they loved. The gospel of forgiveness took a back seat to all the cares and pleasures of this life. And God's word was too boring, or it was too difficult, or not important enough to actually sit and read and study. Listening to and seeking out good preaching wasn't useful or practical. Bible study wasn't as valuable as maybe going to brunch or enjoying ourselves. They called themselves Christians, but they lived in ignorance of Christ and his word. And so when the time came for them, when they needed to exercise their faith, when their faith actually mattered, they came up short because it was boring. It was unimportant. They knew it all already. And yet they were fools who did not believe a word of it. And in they don't enter the feast. We're told in 2 Timothy about who will endure until the day of Christ's return. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You see, the the fools have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, seeking help, hope, and pleasure in everything but the promises of Christ the forgiveness of sins, and the truth of his word. The wise virgins were different because they understood that their wisdom is not in and of themselves, but they were the ones who were comfortable with being called fools by the world as long as it means they're wise unto salvation. They were comfortable with missing out on earthly pleasure or opportunity so long as it meant that their days were filled with the promises of Jesus. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. And Paul also says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here we see the difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. The wisdom of the world is the pursuit of vain pleasure. It is living life of distraction and diversion. It's avoiding difficult conversations about life and faith. It's doing whatever everyone wants to do and doing what everyone around you already does. But the wisdom of God is Christ dying for sinners. It is salvation for the sinner in the name of Jesus who loves you. It's not the things that are wasting away with the world, but it's the internal, eternal inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. It is the promise that we will be delivered from this world and brought into everlasting life where we will hunger no more nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike us nor any scorching heat. We must think about the wedding feast that these five wise virgins entered as the highest and greatest honor and glory that we could ever enter into. 
Because that is the end of our waiting. It is the end of our watching. It is the sunrise over the night of this life. We are watching and waiting for the hour where no darkness will remain. No more distraction. No more sorrow. No more difficulty. There will be no more angst. There will be no more conflict. Love will be pure and genuine. We won't hurt each other. We won't offend each other. We will be beyond failure. We'll be free from our flesh. We will not deal with constant disappointment in ourselves and in others. We won't try to avoid each other by escaping into vanity. We will live in simple and pure unity with Christ as members of his body, and we will see each other as Christ sees us, as perfect objects of love. There will be no such thing as the only the appearance of godliness. There will just be godliness. Oh, I yearn for that. We'll be entirely without sin. There will be no pain. There will be no death. There will be no sorrow. There will be no want. We will be feel filled and free of disordered desires. And our hearts will be fully and completely regenerated. We will stand in eternal awe of the God who loves us. And we will never be bored looking at that beautiful vision of Christ and his Father who love us and redeem us. I can't wait for this. I wake up every morning praying for this day to come. Every other desire, every other hope for the future must live in service to this final hope and this final victory because everything else will perish. If I put my hope in government, it will perish. If I put my hope in pleasure, it will end if I put my hope in money, it will burn with this world. It's all wasting away. But not this. Not the image of the eternal Jerusalem of Christ. Not the great wedding banquet that we have under our Lord and our Savior. We hear the book of Revelations proclaim, as it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain anymore, as the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. I can't comprehend this new world. As my eyes and my vision are so corrupted by sin, as my heart is so deluded by my own weakness, but I do hope in it. I believe in it. I trust when God says and promises that this is for me. This is the glory of the wedding feast. We do not want to be shut out and left in the darkness as Christ is coming. As we do not know the day or the hour, we simply know his return is imminent. And so our time should be spent preparing for the day. As we need the Spirit of God to fill our lamps with oil, we are made prepared as we live in the means of grace. We need them today and every day, because today could be the day that Jesus comes back. And so... We're to fill our days with the grace of Christ. And so I encourage you, dear Christians, read your Bible. Make time for it. 
Pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray for the needs of your neighbor. Pray that God gives you and blesses you with faith. And if you have a family, gather with them every day and do a devotion. Make time to do this. Make that time sacred. Make that time blessed. And above all, come to church. Come to hear the word of God. Hear the saving word of Christ preached to you and for you. God has revealed his son to us. It'd be good if you got to know him. Get to know the actual bridegroom so that when he finally arrives, he's not a stranger. Hear the word of God as if it is the actual revelation of the God who loves you and saves you. Receive the means of grace in the service along with your brothers and sisters in the faith. Come to the altar together as fellow sinners who need Jesus. And be encouraged by the faith of the people who are gathered with you today. Do not neglect this sort of gathering. Rejoice in it. It's good for you. Our God is the one who welcomes sinners into his kingdom by forgiving them through the death of his son. There's no greater love than this. Everything else falls short of this. There's nothing more worthy of your contemplation and your time and your study and your thought than this. There's no greater gift that you can receive than this. Jesus lives to forgive your sins. This is the oil that will fill your lamps. Fill your life with it as well. Live in the grace of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your only Son into the world to die for sinners. For Christ's sake, you continually forgive our sins through the means of grace. And we ask, dear Lord, that you fill our days with these gifts that flow from the cross of Christ and his empty tomb. So that as the time of the world comes to an end, we may be prepared to enter into your eternal wedding feast. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.